The last time we were in this text, we saw how this chapter, Matthew 18, is all about the community of the Messiah. How we are to conduct ourselves living as Christ's community, living in but not of the world. What do we value? Who do we esteem? How do we forgive? How do we deal with sin in our midst? That All of these um, points and more are covered right here in chapter 18, dis- uh, discussing what Christ's community will look like. And last time we saw how the attitude of our community needs to be one of humility. An attitude of humility. The question the disciples asked at the beginning of this chapter, who is the greatest, is antithetical to the gospel of Christ. It has no place in the kingdom of God asking that question unless the obvious answer is Jesus. But Jesus then, you know, basically says, okay, you want to see what true greatness looks like? And he picks up a child, holds him up in their midst. And says, this is what true greatness looks like. This little child. Saying that we must become as they are, humble and dependent on their heavenly father. That is what true greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. Not greatness of our own, but humility. And Jesus warned that those who take these childlike believers and lead them into sin, these people will receive a terrifying degree of judgment as we saw in the preceding verses to our uh, to our text this morning. And with that context in mind, we are actually encouraged in verse 10 where it goes on to say, "See that you do not despise one of these little ones." Straight from the mouth of Christ, we are not to despise, belittle, or to look down upon one of these little ones. These little ones, reminding ourselves that uh, these are not little children, of course. You know, these are, um, when Jesus picked up that child, the child was the analogy saying that we must become as they are. So as adorable as your little children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren might be, they're not necessarily what's being referred to in this text. But believers who take on this childlike humility and simple faith and trust in God. And Jesus here is saying not to despise one of these little ones. Because as with everything else, the gospel takes what is normal and what is expected in the world and turns it completely upside down. God has a way of doing that. Because the world as we know it does not look favorably on the humble or inexperienced. I mean, after all, when was the last time you went on a job interview, and you spoke to the hiring manager, and they said to you, you've got no experience, no knowledge of this field, uh, you, you don't know anything about what you're talking about, you're hired. That doesn't happen. That <laughs> never happens. However, we are called as the church of the living God to esteem these humble believers. <laughs> In other words, when we meet a new believer... Someone who perhaps, for lack of a better word, still has the stink of the world still on them in the way that they talk, in the way that they dress, in the way that they act, in the way they conduct themselves. It might look different than the way we do. We shouldn't look down upon them, but that we should be grateful that they are saved by grace in the first place. 
That's what we're called to view them as. Rather than condemning them for looking or sounding different than we do. Rather, we show them the more excellent way over time. As Pastor Chris, who filled in for me two weeks ago, said, that it is our duty of those of us who call ourselves more mature to help bring these little ones to maturity. To walk alongside them and encourage them. Because that is the attitude of God's community. Not one of belittling, but of empowering, encouraging, and equipping. I'll speak from experience. I, for one, am grateful for the men of God who took me aside as a young believer and showed me that more excellent way, who walked beside me, who gave me books to read, taught me how to teach, taught me how to serve. And... (laughs) Gosh, even helped me edit some of my first sermons, pen in hand. (laughs) I'm grateful for men like that who poured into me. I'm grateful to be the result of God's work in me that included other older believers who took time to, to disciple me. I'm grateful for that. And I hope each of us, in light of that truth, is praying about who we can come alongside, who in our life do we know who we can be that for. But resuming our text, the reason we ought not to despise these little ones is what the rest of verse 10 says, where it goes on to say, For I tell you that heaven, that that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, who or what are angels? Well, Hebrews 1.14 says they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. In other words, their duty is to serve God by attending to and caring for these little ones, his people. And throughout the scripture, we see them doing great things on God's behalf. They speak on God's behalf as they did at the announcement of the birth of Christ. But we also see them, perhaps more fitting for today's context, many angels are often depicted as mighty warriors sent by God. Hold on to that thought. I'll kind of come back to that in a second. But just because somebody's going to ask me about this later, I'm going to dive into it now. Contrary to popular belief, we do not demote ourselves to become angels when we go to the other side. We don't. And I say demote very carefully because angels were not made in the image of God as we are. They are not, um, nor did Jesus become an angel or die on a cross for angels. No, the the unique image and likeness of God is uniquely upon us. Rather, when our day comes to go on to Canaan's side, we will be transformed into our glorified bodies, of which Christ himself showed us the first fruits of. And on that day, you know, receiving those glorified bodies, it'll be a beautiful day. Not angels, but it'll be something special. (laughs) And let me tell you, with every back problem that I experience, the more I look forward to that day. And looking around this room, I know that there's a lot of people who join me in that, in that sentiment. Now, some people see justification in this verse for what has been called guardian angels. Many of you have heard of this. Now, saying that their angels here means that we have an individual angel that belongs to a particular believer. And we've, we've heard of this concept of guardian angels before, but, um, and I know how dear and precious it, it is to some people. 
And I hate to be the guy to say this, but that's not what this verse is necessarily referring to. You see, their angels here is spoken collectively, not individually. In other words, angels collectively are responsible to care for God's, God's people in general. And I actually will argue that that truth is actually even more special than this idea of a one-on-one guardian angel concept. Because God cares so much about his little ones that this verse is saying he has an army of angels ready to be dispatched at a moment's notice to wherever the need arises. That's great news. It's it's reminiscent of 2 Kings 6 where Elisha, uh, Elisha prayed when he was surrounded by the Syrian army. And as he's surrounded by the Syrian army, he prays and the eyes of his servant were opened to be able to see, hold on, we're surrounded by the Syrian army, but the Syrian army is surrounded by horses and chariots of angels from heaven, who was really outnumbered in that case. And with that in mind, I don't know about you guys, but I would rather know that my God has an army of angels ready to be dispatched when the spiritual need arises than just a one-on-one ratio. Because otherwise, I wonder what my guardian angel's been doing over the years sometimes. Where were you when this happened? No, that's not the case. No, these angels that are sent to protect and care for God's people always see the face of the Father. And with that, this picture in mind of how these angels are there present to care for God's children and to protect, God, Jesus then shares an example of God's heart and care for his people, um, giving his community an example to follow. Because as we'll see, the Lord often cares for his people through his people. As we'll see beginning in verse 12, that goes on to say that, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? With that in mind, there are many ways somebody can be astray or lost. There's the one who is lost eternally, who dies without faith, who is separated from God, as Isaiah 59 verse 2 tells us. There are those who people who are lost while living in unbelief. But there are also little ones in the faith that are lost in a different sense. They are redeemed, but confused. Out of fellowship or trapped in their sins. Now, which version of lost or astray is being used in this passage? Well, I believe that the language here is purposefully Not vague, but purposely nonspecific. As our job as God's community here in South Amboy is to care for and reach out to all of the above. We're here to reach out to everyone. God cares for all of them and uses his community, which is the context of Matthew 18, to minister to them, to care for them, to reach out to them and show Christ's love to them. And with that in mind, if you have a hundred sheep back in the first century, you were a one wealthy person. And you might not even notice it from an accounting perspective if one sheep goes astray. Just a big flock of sheep. However, 
Keep this in mind. If a shepherd loves his sheep, and they're not just a number to them, he might notice right away when one of them goes missing. As he's making his rounds, he might discover throughout the day, realize, wait a minute, where's Joe the sheep? I haven't seen Joe all day. Is Joe okay? Where, where's Susan? Where's Susie the sheep? And realize out of love and care, notice when someone who ought to be there is missing. And then out of a pure love for that lost sheep, the shepherd proverbially leaves the 99 to go after the one. And there's so much we need to learn from this text Because notice this person does not sit idly just waiting for the sheep to come home. No, no, rather than waiting for the sheep to realize the error of their ways, the shepherd went while they were still astray. (laughs) Likewise, as again, as this example given to us, we don't likewise sit with judging eyes waiting for the backslidden person to come crawling back to the church. No, that's not what we do. We go out there into the world and we show them the love of God and we invite them back in because that's our example to follow. So like when, when this happens, we will go to the back. We, we don't sit with judging eyes waiting for the backslidden alcoholic, for instance, to clean themselves up. No, we go and reach out to them while that drink is still in their hand, inviting them to that more excellent way. Likewise, we invite our co-workers to church, even if they're still swearing like sailors. Now we still do it. And it's the same thing when we find ourselves asking, you know, as God's community here, like, hey, you know, where's so-and-so? I haven't seen so-and-so in worship for a while. Hey, does anybody know so-and-so? Does anybody have their number? Can we reach out make sure they're okay? Out of love, just reaching out. Showing them the love that God has shown us. Because again, the reason we do that, the reason we go after the sheep that's gone astray is because if you are a Christian this morning, at one point, you were that sheep. That was you at one point. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. There was a time for when each of us were by nature children of wrath, going through life estranged from God in our sins, whatever they were. Your sins might have looked different than mine, but all of our sins have separated us from, from Christ Jesus. All of us have fought, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is this, that even though that's the bad news, the good news is what Jesus said in John 10, 11, that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's the great news this morning. Because indeed, Jesus left more than 99 to come after us. He left the glory and majesty of heaven to come and be among us in the most humble of circumstances. And bringing back us lost sheep cost him far more than just an afternoon of searching around on some rough terrain. No, it took a blood-stained cross to pay the debt that I could not pay to redeem us. So that all who believe this message this morning shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And furthermore, when does it say Jesus was crucified for us? A favorite verse of mine, Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You could even say while we were yet astray, Christ died for us. So many people have the cart before the horse when we start thinking about what we need to do to be saved, to be found acceptable before God, and we have it all backwards. We don't clean ourselves up and then go to Jesus. That's literally the opposite. No, we lay ourselves at his feet now while we are still sinners and allow him to wash us as white as snow, though our sins were like scarlet. He's the one who cleans us up. We go to him and he helps us. You don't go to a doctor to go have them tell you how good you're doing. You go to a doctor to receive help. Same reason we all need Jesus this morning. And by the way, Jesus does not do this out of obligation, but joy. As it says, as it goes on in verse 13, where it says, speaking of, of the, laying down his life for the sheep, and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it, over that lost sheep, more than over the 99 that never went astray. Now, this chapter, again, began with them asking, who is the greatest? (laughs) Which is hilarious the more and more you unpack this chapter. But it's an important context to remember as we continue to go through this text. See, God is not impressed with the sheep just hanging out with each other, just being sheep, arguing arguing with one another over which one has more wool. I know that puts kind of a silly image in our minds, doesn't it? But it's just as silly when we do it. And we do. We do it all the time. But rather than, rather than that, our shepherd is pleased. What actually does please our shepherd is, is what may, what gives him joy is his lost sheep coming home. Redemption is what truly brings our God joy. As Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't you see the point of this? It's, it's so beautiful once you see it that even the cross could not, could not change or deter Christ's joy when it came to the joy it gave him to redeem his sheep. And as we consider these passages, do we likewise rejoice when these little ones come home? Is our joy the same as his joy? In the complimentary account to this one in Luke chapter 15, angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. Does does that describe us as a community? Does our community value labor for, and celebrate when the prodigal returns? Do we celebrate when people make a commitment to following Christ for the first time? Or when people who have been religious for their whole lives finally understand the beauty, the majesty, and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved sinners like me? And with that question asked out there, not only does that 
do we ask, does that define our community? Does that describe you individually? I mean, after all, what is a community but the group of individuals? The whole community isn't going, to, isn't going to create an identity that's different than what the individuals of that community believe. So is that you too? Do you personally celebrate what makes angels rejoice? What makes our God rejoice? Redemption, salvation. And if you do, if that is you, let me remind you one more time. You know, VBS is right on our doorstep. Do you want to labor for things that make angels rejoice? Because when those children make decisions for him, I assure you there's quite an uproar in heaven of applause. Furthermore, we're going to have some summer outreaches starting soon, and we could always use some more help. There's plenty of opportunities we can labor for the things of God. Do you want to labor for what makes angels rejoice? (laughs) I sure do. And because our God is all about redemption, verse 14 will conclude our time today saying, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now it's very reminiscent of our first reading this morning from Ezekiel 33 that said, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That is God's heart for everyone this morning because there is no there is no joy there is no rejoicing there is no glory in the death of a sinner who has not yet turned from his ways but rather as second peter 3 9 says god is not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance and indeed be restored like that lost sheep come home. And because it's not God's pleasure that any be without him, we gently extend an open invitation to all. This is the heart of missions and evangelism in a nutshell. Not one of judgment, but one of reconciliation, one of an open hand, offering what we know to be best, offering what... Script, the, the ultimate heart's desire of all, communion and fellowship with God. I mean, we, we were made to be in communion and fellowship with God. That is what God has made us for. It's the only thing that can possibly satisfy our hearts on both sides of eternity. I mean, it's been said that every person has a God-shaped hole in their hearts. And only having a relationship with the living God can fill that hole, fill that void. And to remain outside of that relationship for any reason is really the ultimate detriment to ourselves. We're missing out when we don't allow our hearts to be filled with the love of God. Which is why a favorite hymn of ours says that there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. That's the truth. And you know, maybe maybe as we work towards our conclusion this morning, maybe that's you. Maybe while I'm addressing the, the gathered church this morning, maybe you're realizing you've never personally repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus as your Savior to believe the gospel. 
Maybe you've even been a churchgoer your whole life, but you've never made that decision personally. And if that's you, I can. I just want to encourage you, don't leave here before you leave. Don't leave here before you settle your business with God. Turn from your sins and believe the good news of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And commit your ways to following him. Remembering that God's not standing at the door all angry, waiting for you to come crawling back. No, that's not God. That's not his heart. It'll actually bring him great joy to see his sheep come home. This is the kind of community God wants built in his churches. Everywhere his churches are found. One that esteems these humble believers. And one that rejects the proud and the arrogant. God seeks a seeking community that is not content with the 99, but goes after his precious sheep whom Christ has done for. That is our mission today, church. Are you guys in? Thanks be to God. Amen.